The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Champions League drama. Spurs left spitting after offside spot v Sporting. Barcelona with a Catalan catastrophe. Once this club poured levers, now in the Champions League, they are one. With more pain in Spain as Atletico also end their campaign, we round up all the midweek news and look ahead to the Premier League weekend with a top v bottom clash at the Emirates as Arsenal face Forest and at the Amex, in a bit of a turn up, seaside visitors with the habit of nicking things off seagulls. All that and more coming up in this Totally Football Show. Hello everybody. Thursday the 27th of October 2022. And Totally Football Show today composed of Duncan Alexander, Raphael Honigstein and Colin Miller uh, with me. Hello everyone. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning to you Colin. It's been uh, It's been a remarkable week got uh, Premier League to discuss but whew, penultimate round of, of Champions League matches and so much drama. Duncan did you enjoy? Very much so yeah I mean it was I think this is going down as one of the better group stages in in recent memory there's a lot of a lot of drama big teams going out big mm. uh, teams going three big players doing stuff and a little bit of VAR magic to cap it off. <laughs> There certainly was some of that, wasn't there? Seven more sides qualifying for the last 16 over Tuesday and Wednesday this week. That was Chelsea, Dortmund, Paris Saint-Germain and Benfica on Tuesday. Porto, Inter and Liverpool on Wednesday. Four spots are left. You've got eight teams battling for them. Milan and Salzburg, Leipzig and Shakhtar and all of Group D, which features Spurs, Sporting, Eintracht and Marseille. They're all separated by just two points. Woof. Meanwhile, out as of this week, Juventus. And Barcelona, yeah, Barcelona won't be among the last 16 and nor will Atletico Madrid or Sevilla. Wow. Barca, though, missing out on the knockouts. Major financial blow. It's good thing they haven't spent the money already, eh? Barcelona's whole strategy of their of their economic levers, as, as they like to put it this summer, was, was exactly to prevent this sort of thing happening. The whole point was the short-term fixes. And it almost feels like they're now in too deep to stop that approach. It feels like, well, they're, you know, they're going to have to, they're going to have to make up for this shortfall in income with, with, with some other lever. And, and obviously that, that lever could well be um, more promotion of the Super League, um, which, which is what they, Juventus and Real Madrid, have obviously been, been parroting um, quite a bit over the past year. And the, the PR for that seems to have come back up a notch or two, um, coinciding with the court case that's going through at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see, certainly with Juventus going out too, just how much more we hear about that over the mm. over the weeks to come. Neither they nor Juventus, great adverts for a, a so-called Super League uh, this midweek. How, we, we see the figure of kind of 30 to 50 million euros, which is quite a broad range, banded around as a potential hit to Barcelona of not making the last 16. How big a problem is it for the Catalans? I think it, it is a problem. We we don't know how much of a problem. Obviously, as you said, the, the range of potential impacts of player bonuses, of potential sponsorships that are linked into this are they're not they're not clear at the moment. Um but I think what is clear, and this is this is true with, with the other Spanish sides, Atletico Madrid and Sevilla, who've obviously gone out too, is that all of their economic situations are so delicate at the minute that such fine margins, even if you're talking ten or fifteen million euros, they could be significant. And when we're talking about Barcelona in particular, this comes just weeks after they had to accept that they lost half of the 40 million euros agreement they had with Atletico Juan Griezmann because of the, the deal that they had and they had the compromise. So they've lost 20 million euros because of that. Their agreement with Sixth Street, the US investment firm for the La Liga TV income for 25% of that, they're going to be losing 41 million euros per season starting now because of that. And then as well, we've, we've almost sort of forgetting about this, but the camp now is getting these renovation works. So they're not going to be playing at home next season, which is going to reduce their capacity by about 50,000 or so. And that's going to lose up to 50 million euros a season too. So they have all these losses, which in isolation sound like they could be manageable, but when they are built up and when they are set against a backdrop whereby they have already borrowed so much money, it creates a situation whereby... I think I think it's very it is very delicate and and they can't they don't have much room for error and going into the Europa League the the income available through that just doesn't doesn't compare at all um, mm-hmm. unfortunately 
Rafa, you were watching their game Wednesday evening, a day that had started off in disastrous fashion for them. They came in early to watch the other group game, Inter against Victoria Pilsen, knowing that if Inter won, their chances of making the last 16 were over. Inter duly recorded a 4-0 victory over the Czechs. And then out, Barca came to take on their old friend Bayern Munich, and it went about as well as you'd expect. Yeah, a bit of a thankless task, I think, uh, going into a game knowing that uh, you're already out. I think it was hard for them to get up to speed with Bayern's intensity. They had one or two moments, but I think through the whole game, Sven Ulreich didn't have a proper save to make. And that's both down to Bayern's resolute defending of the box. They were, they were open at times, but once they got near their own box, they defended pretty well in the numbers. And uh, also this bluntness from, from Barcelona, which is a bit weird. I mean, you've seen, I don't know how many how many attempts it really were, but in my image, this Barcelona is sort of Usman Dembele doing three really good things and then playing a really weak ball to the opposition centre-back. That's sort of the classic Barcelona move. And it just doesn't seem to be enough cohesion in the side, which maybe is understandable if you add so many new players and uh, still have a manager who's trying to find his feet at this level. But ultimately, of course, they didn't lose or they didn't you know, get knocked out really in this game alone. I think the, the damage was done way before. They, should have, they shouldn't have only took one point from those two games against Inter where they should have really done better. Even mm. The clash with Bayern, though, an emotional night for one Bayern legend. Eric Maxson, Chupa Moting. Wow, he's on fire. Yeah, um, he is on fire. He scored five in his last four. Uh, really the surprise impact player of the season. Everyone thought, okay, uh, he's just there because he's a lovely guy in the dressing room and people really like him. And, uh, you know, occasionally, maybe when we're chasing a game, we need to throw in uh, a number nine. Otherwise, we have all these uh, wingers and hybrid players and number tens who are going to combine, somehow come up with the goals. But Nagelsmann changed things for the last four games and he's been on point. He didn't really play so much like a real focal point. Um, it's it's still more sort of of that 4-2-2-2 formation uh, with him going quite deep at times. The first goal, I just watched it back, he is actually next to Joshua Kimmich in the, almost in the number six position when the ball comes to Gnabry and then that fantastic diagonal ball to release Sadio Mane. So, it's not so much a focal point. I think he just works really hard and he is very good at holding up the ball in uh, also in deeper areas, dropping, and just um, brings a bit of glue to this team at the moment. The sort of glue you might use to repair a pot, which he would have known from his time at Stoke City. Um, I noticed last night his last assist in the Premier League was for Joe Allen. Joe Allen, who still has appeared in the European final more recently than Barcelona. And that, that might continue this season. And perhaps that's the stat that says the most about the Catalans' predicament. Not the only... I was wondering where you're going with the pot reference. You know, it's, it's a mm. tricky subject for footballers sometimes. But, um, I evaded it lively. Not the only big casualty from La Liga... As we mentioned, Colin, Sevilla going out on Tuesday. Wednesday then saw Atletico Madrid after Porto had won earlier that day 4-0 against Bruges. Atletico Madrid needing a win to stay in the competition. Luckily, they were facing struggling Bayer Leverkusen. But oh my word, they're drawing 2-2 with Xavi Alonso's side as they, we get into time added on. The referee blows the final whistle and they're out. But oh my goodness... No, they've been given a lifeline because VAR has spotted a handball penalty. A bit like that Brighton Man United game, do you remember? So, yeah, so Atletico, Yannick Carrasco steps up to take the penalty that's going to put them through to the last 16. Rafa. And the penalty is saved, James, what? by Lukas Radetzky. But there is a chance because the follow-up is being headed. No, it's against the bar what? by Saul. And it comes back and Renilda's having a shot. Oh, no, he hits Carrasco on the line. Carrasco himself. Unbelievable. I cannot believe what I'm not seeing at this point, but what I did <laughs> see last night. I bet Atletico is still seeing those those pictures in front of their eyes. Their Champions League hopes going up, poof, in a puff of Carrasco-shaped smoke. Mm. And the, thing, the thing about Atletico this season is that they have been grinding out results in La Liga, but with 
performances that are very passive, very almost typical in, in a way of Atletico, but they've they've been winning based on fine margins, and I think that's that's just gone against them a little bit in in the group stage, and it's a little bit of a shame, um, especially because it robs us of the the final day sort of all important clash between Porto and Atletico because I don't know if you'll remember this but a year ago it was Atletico Madrid who knocked out Porto in a, in a, in a match which has a lot of a lot of bad blood in it and then obviously Porto have had the the celebrations after, after their own game they had a little bit of a wait after after winning 4-0 in Bruges and they they watched the closing stages of Atletico Madrid's dramatic uh, draw um, on on their airplane uh, as a group together, and as you can imagine, they were they they were jubilant. It was it was worth the wait. And this is this has actually been, if we're looking at it, obviously a disastrous um, Champions League campaign for Spanish sides, whereby we've only got one of four going through. But Porto were through, um, Benfica are through, and Sporting Club could could well join them. So as far as Portugal is concerned, they've had another another strong um, strong campaign, and we've really seen the strength of those sides. I think, and that they're going to be they're going to be difficult opponents. I think for anybody in the knockouts. Sporting part of that extraordinary Group D, which is going to go down to the final match day after dramatic scenes Wednesday night at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. The clash with Spurs, a win would qualify Tottenham. In the 95th minute, Harry Kane finally gets a winner, only to see that ruled out by VAR. What what, what did you make? There was a lot of controversy over the decision. Antonio Conte sent off. Lots of discussions with referee Danny Makelele. What was the Makelele role in in this? Was Was the offside wrong? No, the offside was correct. Um, obviously, VAR takes a blame, a lot of blame for a lot of things. But you know, people, this is a sort of incident. If you can imagine, without VAR, if the referee just disallowed it for offside correctly, people would have been like, "We need to watch it back on video and make." You know, you can't, you can't make these decisions in a rush manner. Now we're in a situation where it's the complete opposite. But basically, a lot of people, including Eric Dyer, thought that if the ball went backwards, that you couldn't be offside. But it's actually the player needs to be behind the ball and Harry Kane was ahead of the ball when it was headed back across. Now yes it did take a deflection but that wasn't a sort of deliberate bit of play so that isn't counted and people forget that that can also in different situations that can benefit attacking players as well. So we've, we've got to a point where people are sort of making judgments on decisions based on the, the fact that they wanted Spurs to win that game and felt that Spurs deserved a, a late winner. Um, but you can't go against the laws of the game. If people, you know, the essence of, of what people have been complaining about is that decisions have been made incorrectly. Well, this was a correct decision, however controversial it, it seemed at the time. Also, what I would say to any VAR, anti-VAR fundamentalists, uh, if it wasn't for VAR, Spurs... Anti-VAR, never... that's what they're called. Yeah, anti-VAR, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. Um, Spurs would have never made it to a Champions League final. I mean, they're, they're beneficiaries of the biggest VAR intervention possibly ever, which no one saw at the time in the in the game against uh, Manchester City. Last night, he had loads of people saying, well, with, with VAR, you can't even celebrate goals. Now, yeah. the stadium went bonkers when Kane's right. goal went in. So yeah. I didn't see anyone go, hang on, hang on, let's wait a few minutes. So there's well, all Lots of times you of... do. Lots of times you do, Duncan. No, no one doesn't celebrate a goal and, and wait. Are you kidding? Yeah. I give you Harvey Elliott. Against Rangers for Liverpool. Yeah, but the Liverpool fans celebrated when it went in, oh, and then they the got players. another celebration. He deserved his celebration. He got he got a hug. Yeah, from Mo this isn't the time nor the place for us to bicker. <laughs> Let's celebrate instead the magnificence of Marcus Edwards, Enfield born and bred, who gave Sporting the lead in the first half hour. Then it was Rodrigo Bentancur who equalised for Tottenham. Really curious, actually, the Sporting manager Ruben Amarim who with about 20 minutes to go, almost like he kind of had a he presaged the disaster potentially in store, he kind of sank to his haunches and started staring at the floor with his head in his hands. He looked like a man waking up with a hangover, just suddenly remembering <laughs> what he'd done the night before. And that's how he spent the, the closing minutes of, of, of this game. It's the sort of position we sometimes see from producer Charlie during, during this pod. But mm. um, it's, it's a bizarre thing to do because... I don't know how much impact and influence you really have from the sidelines, but I think you want you want to at least project some level of confidence, maybe. 
I mean, if you are looking across and you see your manager basically nearly prostate on the floor, um, waiting for the impending doom, I think it doesn't do much for for your confidence. I, I mean, the only other thing, potentially, was he unwell? I don't know if he'd had lasagna or something there at Spurs, or, or was uh, that might be the one explanation. But very, very curious scenes. Not anyway. Erling Haaland's lasagna, obviously. Maybe he was trying to see the NFL perch underneath the grass. Possibly so. Possibly so. Uh, Conte's uh, suspended for the final match day, which sees Spurs go to Marseille. They beat Marseille 2-0 on the opening day. Sporting, meanwhile, will be taking on Eintracht Frankfurt. All four teams can go through and equally can miss out. Drama. Spurs this weekend are at Bournemouth, who also have lost back-to-back Premier League games. Spurs have failed to score in their last two visits to the Vitality. Huh. Anyway, much more in the Premier League to come. More Champions League thoughts, though, after this. Hello, it's Kate Borsay, Lindsay Hooper and Hayley McQueen here, otherwise known as the Offside Rule. We have a very special show. It's been 10 years of the Offside Rule. If you've been enjoying it over the last decade, you can get some extra insight. Yes, we have a really good chat about how the industry has changed in the 10 years and chat as well about some of the highs of recording a podcast as an only female trio in the football world and some of the lows as well. So join us for fun. We're also joined by Harriet Drudge and Laura Williamson from The Athletic. So check it out. That's The Offside Rule. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Okay, so Spurs waiting for next week to know if they make the last 16. The other three Premier League sides are all safely through to the knockout stages. City already booked their place on the last match day. They took it easy Tuesday in an anticlimactic nil-nil draw at Dortmund. That's their second goalless draw in a row in the competition. Pope Guardiola's side. Liverpool, meanwhile, winning 3-0 away to Ajax. And Chelsea, uh, 2-1 winners at Salzburg. Chelsea still unbeaten under Graham Potter, uh, who returns to Brighton with the Blues this weekend. That Liverpool victory, uh, impressive in the second half. Did, uh, did Duncan, you were watching this. Yeah, I mean, Ajax started really well and, and missed a couple of really good chances. Um, and Liverpool, it looked like Liverpool was still in their, in their malaise. But then they kind of really grew into it. And um, a bit like we said a couple of weeks ago, or last week rather, after the Premier League games, um, Darwin Nunes, it's just, you know, he is unconventional, but he does make this Liverpool team a lot better. And it's funny seeing the sort of debate about him continuing. You know, he's he's now got, he's made seven starts at Liverpool and has got six goals and an assist, which is pretty good numbers. So I think the, the is he good, is he not good debate, yes, in the first half he did manage to hit the post with an open goal, but you know, even that's fun. The ball rebounded further than I thought it would, so you've got to respect that. But yeah, it was a, a, a pretty solid professional performance from Liverpool. You know, that's 10 goals in, in two Champions League away games in the last two, which is twice as many as they scored away from home in the Premier League all season. So um, I think some, some teams like Spurs slash Antonio Conte do struggle in Europe. But for Liverpool, it feels like they're sort of safe place. You know, even when, when things aren't going that well, a sort of a classic European tie against a, a team like Ajax seems to kind of almost relax Liverpool. And uh, yeah, they look they look good. And it sets up, I mean, it's very unlikely that they can finish top of the group, but there is an outside chance. And I think that it, it's good that that Liverpool-Napoli game is going to have something riding on it because uh, it could be an all-time classic. I was going to say as well, on... On, on Napoli, that we, we, we sort of obviously think of them as, as this, this really smooth, free-flowing attacking team. And, and and in a way, that's true. But I was looking at their numbers defensively as well. And they've only conceded 11 in their last 15 matches. They've only conceded one shot on target across their last two games as well. And I was I was actually at their the match at Roma on, on Sunday night when they, when they won 1-0. And obviously, it was a quite a late winner. But throughout that match... The two things that struck me were one, it was just an incredible atmosphere um, in the Stadio Olimpico, but just how well Napoli managed it. They they seemed in 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 complete 
control almost throughout throughout that match. Even when it was nil nil, you always just thought, yeah, they've they've got enough to see it through. And and we've seen that obviously with their European performances too this year. I mean, they have been the best team in the Champions League. And Giovanni Simeone, who's sort of come into this side this year on loan and he stepped in for Ossiman a couple of these times in the Champions League and again he scored he scored last night so it'll be nice for the uh, Simeone family to continue their to continue their representation in the Champions League knockouts nice. at least and he yeah. has he has made a real impact Giovanni Simeone as well I think he's a very good striker indeed Colin I just want to throw a stat your way Two goals on Wednesday for Giovanni Simeone against Rangers. He became only the second Argentine player ever to score four goals in their first four Champions League games. I wonder if you can name the other. It's it's not his dad, is it? It's his dad, Diego Simeone. Oh, wow. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Anyway... Rangers finishing bottom of the group. They are in good shape to break the record for the worst group stage campaign ever. If they lose by two goals against Ajax on the final match day, that record will be theirs. Unless, who's this sneaking up on the outside? Victoria Pilsen. They could snatch it as well, depending on what they do in their final uh, group stage game. They'll be up against Barcelona, of course. Mm, both Spanish sides, sorry, both Scottish sides, easy mistake to make, are out. Neither will be in the Europa League. Neither. Duncan, I was just mentioning my favourite fact of the week, which is that Simeone stat. What what was yours? What other things caught your eye? Yeah, it was uh, when PSG had a had a very comfortable win. Um, Messi's now scored more goals from outside the box uh, since his Champions League debut than Cristiano Ronaldo's overtaken him, which I'm sure went down well in Cheshire. So um, yeah, it's uh, you know he's already scored as many goals as he did last season. So he's uh, he's looking like he's getting ready for the World Cup. How many is he behind the other fella now in Champions League terms? Is it 11 now, I think? I think it's 10 11. or 11. Yeah, mm. so it's unlikely this season, I would say, but you never know. I think Bessie has um, benefited quite a lot this season from um, from the new the new sort of setup at PSG. They've, they've changed their formation up. Last year under Pochettino, they were sort of playing a 4-3-3 and there's, there was quite a lot of criticism of how that didn't properly accommodate either Messi or Neymar because what that meant was that Messi tended to just be sort of isolated a little bit on the right. Whereas I think this season they've gone to three at the back um, and they've pushed Ashraf Hakimi and Nuno Mendes into essentially wingers rather than rather than defenders. And what that's done is that's given them the width and it sort of moved it into a three four two one with Messi and Neymar much more much more central behind Mbappe. And obviously Mbappe himself has not been too happy with his with his role in that team. Um, is he? Which he hasn't is, mentioned that. <laughs> which is I I always find it a little bit strange in the sense that he he's still scoring so many goals and it still looks like he's playing so so well in that setup and you always just think what what really is what really is the sort of dynamic there and then and then whenever there was a pretty poor challenge on Mbappe in that game against Maccabi Haifa and Neymar was absolutely furious with um with the Maccabi Haifa defender that made the challenge and you sort of think oh this this doesn't really this doesn't really go along with the narrative that these two players just really 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 don't get on so it's an it's such an interesting dynamic to see how um how that PSG team just functions and how it sort of varies so much between this just incredible coherence of attacking football and then you see just these these bizarre incidences of well, I guess it's egotism, probably more more than anything else. But it's um, they are an interesting team to watch. There's no doubt about it. To be fair to Mbappe, he's now assisted more Champions League goals since 2017 than any other player. So you could argue that he, you know, he wants to be that creator as well as that goal scorer. Um, maybe he should go to join Chelsea. He can Graham Potter will play him at wing back, and he can be happy. It's a great idea, Duncan. In other midweek news, Shakhtar still in the mix. To make the last 16, they need to beat Leipzig on match day six. Leipzig, who beat holders Real Madrid on Tuesday. Carlo Ancelotti's side thus losing uh, their unbeaten record so far this season. Benfica still have theirs. They have now gone 20 games in all competitions this season and haven't lost a single one of them. This midweek, they were taking on Juventus in yet another must-win game for the old lady, who promptly shipped three goals in the first half. Ended up losing, although Tanya Press at least had the final 20 minutes to kind of 
pinned their hopes to where there was kind of a ray of a ray of light, as the Gazette had put it, among the storm. Young man by the name of Samuel Illing Jr., one of three 19-year-olds that Allegri threw on for the final 20 minutes after he given up on the likes of Vlajevic and Bonucci, uh, who almost turned the game around. Juve brought it back to 4-3. Uh, Il Baby Inglesi, as uh, Gazessa's headline dubbed Illing Jr., with an assist for one of the goals, uh, also involved in, in another. And is he going to be the man who makes the difference going forward? says Gazetta, who are expecting a revolution from the old lady now that the Champions League jig is up. Anyway, Benfica, meanwhile, how about that? Roger Schmidt, Rafa, quietly compiling a pretty extraordinary uh, campaign there. Why, why didn't he get mentioned more when people are talking about the great managers and we should pinch a manager from this club or that club? Uh, maybe because he hasn't uh, yet won sort of a big trophy um, he's been successful in a way at Leverkusen. He's been doing okay at uh, Eindhoven. I don't know his record at China. Apologies, maybe he might have won a, a big trophy there. But um, I think every sort of young hopeful, whatever, needs some kind of marquee result. And if you were to take, let's say, Benfica into the semi-final or something, then suddenly people would wake wake up to him the way that they have to Ten Hag. Um, but yeah, he he's doing well, and I think he might be becoming hotter and sexier prospect, James. Very good. Well, so many stories in this penultimate match day of action in the Champions League. Before we move on from Europe, though, Colin. So yeah, Shakhtar Donetsk are still in with a chance of making the round of 16 going into the final day. They've obviously qualified at least for the Europa League um, group stage, and I I really do think that this is um, this is an incredible story, really, and and I think they've actually been unlucky as well in this group stage in the fact that Real Madrid obviously got that very very late equaliser against them in match day four, and I think the fixtures have kind of worked against them a little bit too in the sense that they played a sort of full strength Real Madrid twice and. RB Leipzig got a slightly a slightly rested version of them in match day five, so they've been a little bit unlucky with the way it's panned out. But just just to look at what has happened, obviously obviously we all know about about the backdrop of the war. But I mean they haven't played in Donetsk in eight years now. They they lost all but one of their non-Ukrainian players this year. They lost their coach this year. They didn't play for six months this year due to due to the situation that's going on. They still obviously can't play in Ukraine in the Champions League. And for them to be doing what they are doing, I I, I really find it remarkable. And I, I was speaking to their director of football, Dario Serna, and their CEO, um, Sergei Palkin earlier this season, and they were they just kept going on about how significant these games were, not just for the club, but but for but for the country, just to see that, just you know, to give fans, to give the population a sense of escapism, a sense of almost of hope and, and pride in what they're doing, and just with, with 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 when you see what the players are having to go through and keep to keep up with what what is happening in in, in their home country, it's it it feels like it's a it's an inspirational story in a way, and it really it just really feels like they have they have overachieved massively um, compared to what to what sort of naturally should have should have been happening, and I think it's worth acknowledging just just how good that has been and how and how impressive it is that they're that they're going to still be in Europe come come February and March. Yeah, it was extraordinary that they were even in the Champions League given the situation, but they do have a real chance of making it to the last 16. They're going to be hosting RB Leipzig on the final day. They're three points behind the Germans, so they have to win. But of course, they did win when the two teams last met in Leipzig back on match day one. So one to keep an eye on next week. Very nice, Colin. Next up then, on to the Premier League. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Premier League 
Ooh, there's eight games on Saturday this week. You've got Leicester Man City kicking things off Saturday lunchtime. That's followed at three by a bunch of fixtures. Newcastle, Aston Villa, Bournemouth Spurs, Brighton, Chelsea, Crystal Palace Saints, Brentford Wolves. Tea time, Fulham take on Everton. Marco Silva against the side that fired him three years ago. And then Liverpool leads. Rafa, you'll be at that one. Sunday, it's top v bottom as Arsenal take on Forest. And then it's Man United West Ham. What's catching your eye from that lot? Is it Brighton Chelsea with the return of Graham Potter to the Amex? Tagline, they haven't won since he left. He <laughs> hasn't lost since he joined. Wouldn't it be just typical? That it ends 1-1. Do you think, Duncan? Yeah, it's going to end 1-1. Really? Like, like, yeah, of course it is. Um, well, last season, both matches finished 1-1. Mm. In fact, four of the last five meetings have been drawn. But, of course, back then, Brighton had a different manager. Whatever happened to him? Mm. One of the teams will take the lead early, uh-huh. and they will play like they're 3-0 up instead of 1-0 up, and they'll make 14 formation changes, and then the other team will equalise, and then the ref will blow the final whistle. Right. You you sound like a man who didn't watch Chelsea in action Tuesday night away at Salzburg. Not an easy place to get a result. They did go up 1-0 up early on. The other team did come back and equalise. But then Kai Havertz, so often the man for the big European night, with the winner, which sealed their progress. Yeah, his first goal from outside the box for Chelsea. It was a very good goal. But, no, I just think... Chelsea is still a work in progress under under Potter. Brighton is still a, a work in progress under Zerbi. And um, I think this will be a really good game. I think it will be quite intriguing, but it just it will end 1-1. Is there any kind of nascent bitterness between Brighton and Chelsea over the way that the uh, London side are hoovering up all the best bits of the Seagulls' operation? They've taken their left-back, their manager, the management team, and now they're in for their head of recruitment, Paul Wynne-Stanley. Well, they played a friendly a behind-closed-doors game after Potter went to Chelsea, so there can't be that much I guess not. Uh, bitterness. Yeah. Rafa? I was just going to say, I think it was very interesting what Potter did at Salzburg with the uh, wing-back experiment, uh, Pulisic and Sterling, not two players that you necess- would necessarily expect to be in, in a wing-back system, but it worked really well. They had lots of chances. They could have scored more. Of course, they had one or two moments where Salzburg perhaps showed a little bit of inexperience and could have taken more advantage. I'm not sure we're going to see too much of that, but I just thought, you know, this is this is an interesting thing to do um, for for a team that hadn't really been very expensive, I think, up until this point. I saw them play Man United and I wasn't very impressed with them. I thought they were very passive certainly in the first uh, 30 minutes or so before Potter changed the system. So I agree with Duncan. There's still, there's still a sense of him trying to work out what the best use of all these players is. But to then do something bold when you're still not quite sure, I think is quite, um, it's quite remarkable and to be complimented. Hmm? I think that's true in the sense that as a man who has worked his way up in his career from you know from university coach to, to Premier League manager it would be easy to go into somewhere like Chelsea and be a little bit well I don't want to upset the apple car and I'll sort of and he has he's been changing every game and during games as well so it is it shows a sort of self-confidence that I think will will stand him in good stead as, as time goes on very nice elsewhere in the Premier League this weekend Sunday at 2 o'clock, Arsenal, league leaders, take on the bottom side, Nottingham Forest. Forest the bottom side, but of course they're fresh from that mighty win against Liverpool. They're fresh from back-to-back clean sheets. They are also the lowest scorers away from home in the Premier League this season. And Arsenal are one of only two teams with a 100% winning record at home. But still, could there be good times ahead for Forest travelling fans? I I think um, for Arsenal... (laughs) It's it's important in a way because it, the thing last season with them was that they didn't respond very well to to disappointing results, and I know we're way to Southampton a draw. It's not it's not the worst result in the world, but it, it was it was a slip up in terms of the standards that they've set themselves this season, and it it will be it it, it will be a test against a, a Forest side who who don't concede many goals, not who seem to have 
not stumbled upon, but certainly found that that sort of settled eleven, which have settled, have eluded them a little bit in the first the first month or two, and there seems to be more of a structure in in their setup now. And it could be a case of if Arsenal don't get an early goal, there might be there might be a sense of frustration creeps into the performance. But I think that generally speaking, this is probably a a nice fixture for them just to, just to sort of rediscover that winning feeling and to keep that to keep that cushion at the top of the league as well because I don't know how long that's going to last but I think the longer it does will be an important um, an important psychological factor as well just just to give just to keep that good good mood and that momentum going because it's very it's very easy to lose that but so far they they've managed to to keep that quite well they certainly responded to uh, a poor result well earlier on in the season when they lost to Man United but kind of bounced back very nicely from that their uh, nearest opponents at the top of the table are Manchester City who will be at Leicester this weekend Leicester who just climbed out of the bottom three with that 4-0 victory at Wolves what's going on with Leicester may I ask just for the international break they lost 6-2 at Spurs which meant that they conceded a record-breaking number of goals at that stage of a Premier League season since then though Four clean sheets in five. They're looking better at set, defending set pieces. They are defending a bit deeper. They were so open at the start of the season. They they were always massively overperforming going forwards, and I think they will do with with the players they've got. You know, they they've scored more than than Chelsea and Manchester United this season. So so goal scoring is not an issue for them. In fact, Leicester and Man City are the two biggest overperformers uh, on XG in the in the Premier League going forwards this season. So I, I I was never worried about Leicester. I always thought that they would they would creep back up, and that seems to be what's happening now. Um, you know, another few wins, and they'll be safely in mid table. Um, maybe not in this game, but we've never seen a six five in the Premier League. That's the lowest scoring not seen score. So uh, let's let's shoot for one of those in us on XG at least. Mm. Mm. Leicester haven't actually scored in the last three meetings with City at the King Power, but hey. Let's see. Erling Holland taken off at half time in City's midweek clash with Borussia Dortmund. Pep said he had a bit of a fever and a knock on his foot, but fingers crossed that he'll be available for City at the weekend. Wolves are at Brentford. Wolves with the worst away record in the Premier League. Brentford's home record, one of the best in the league. Bobby Madley? He's going to yeah. referee this match. Bobby it's Madley bad. hasn't taken charge of a Premier League game in nearly four years. I'd completely forgotten this, but he was dismissed for recording and then sharing a video in which he appeared to mock the disabled. He's since been refereeing in Norway and the Football League. Yeah, he went to Norway um, to, you know, recuperate Mm. and referee. Um, Two things can go hand in hand. Um, And then, yeah, I've seen him back in the EFL. Um, He's a good referee, so, yeah. His brother, Andy Madley, will also be officiating this weekend. He's in charge of Brighton, Chelsea. Who's Richard Madley got? Sister Trudy. <laughs> it's a Madley medley. Hey. Nice. Truly. Uh, can I just ask, uh, yes. Duncan, as, as somebody who understands numbers, you mentioned briefly that City are widely uh, overperforming their their XG with apologies if you've discussed this before on the show Um, but from what I read here it's not just sort of the odd goal it's 11 Mm. sorry it's 10 and a half goals I mean how is that even possible is that all because of one man he doesn't score crazy goals from like impossible angles so where does these weird goals come from he is a little bit above, but you're right. It is. It's a team effort. But also, the the weird thing with City is that last season they scored 98 goals in the in Premier League, and their xG was 98. So they were like they were perfectly bang on for the season. So this year is a massive improvement. And I think, yeah, I think it's obviously connected with Haaland and and you know opportunities that are arising for players like Foden that maybe weren't last season. But yeah, I mean, it is at this stage of the season, it is a, it's a huge overperformance, and it does. Um, I mean, you could argue it gives it gives some hope because you know they're still not top of the table even with that overperformance. So yeah, it'd be interesting if Haaland is is out of this game, how that how that um, affects him. Because you know, I know Leicester haven't done that well recently against City, but historically, the last sort of five ten years, they have had a pretty good record. I remember a few seasons ago in the COVID season when. Day one, five two away at City. Um, so, 
yeah, it's um, unprecedented. Also, a potential injury worry arising from midweek is Jordan Henderson, who came off not looking very happy during Liverpool's win away at Ajax. Uh, not sure if there's any fresh updates on that. Obviously, midfield's a bit of a worry for Jurgen Klopp with uh, several other names out at the moment, not just in midfield, neither. Rafa, you're going to uh, Liverpool Leeds, is that right, this weekend? I am, yes. Looking forward to it, James. I wonder if this is going to be the last game of uh, Jesse Marsh. Um, I haven't seen his team play in the flesh, so I'm quite quite interested to see how good they are. Again, the numbers suggest that they're not quite as bad as the table position uh, makes out, but there's always this, this weird point, which I think sort of one of football's intangibles, where teams don't get results even when they are playing well, and then what boards decide is basically we need a new lucky charm uh, because um, everything is more or less okay, but we don't get the break. So let's get a lucky general in, in charge. You'll just have a bit more luck. And we might might be approaching that moment uh, with, with Jesse, Jesse Marsh. So yeah, it should be, should be good. Um, Liverpool's issues, as you said, are of course a lot to do with the lack of personnel that they have. And it's not going to be an easy game, I think, for them on Saturday night. Leeds, of course, uh, didn't win any any match at all under the UK's previous um, prime minister, and the the clock's already already ticking on making that two PMs in a row. So it'll um, it'll be interesting to see how they how they how they fare here. But I, I agree I agree with Rafa. It's, it's going to be very difficult to see to see them getting any any sort of result at Anfield. Um, Liverpool's home record so strong. I, I know there's maybe a little bit of a vulnerability still with them, but. Just I've watched these a couple of times this season, and they 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 started off of, of quite well. They started off with a few wins, and that result over Chelsea, everybody sort of set up and took notice. Like you know, they they've actually made a couple of really good signings. This this style of play is actually really effective. I'm very energetic, of course, but there, there is something about Jesse Marsh that has always felt very very underwhelming to me it always feels like there's there's a deep vulnerability to that it feels very dogmatic almost in the sense of the approach the same mistakes seem to keep happening again and again both both systematically defensively but also individually I, I think players maybe look a little bit short in confidence and the big thing with Leeds is just not having a not having a reliable striker not having somebody that's going to score 15 or 20 goals a season and, and the, the lack of depth that they have up front I, I, you know, it's it's something that that would concern you, and if they don't invest in January, I'd I'd worry about them. Well, there was a bit of doubt about his tactical acumen when he took over Leipzig. He'd worked there as an assistant manager, and some of the players weren't quite sure. And in the end, Leipzig, perhaps despite their better judgment, went with him and then regretted it because. For all the the great man management and the cohesion that he brought, I think to the dressing room, he just couldn't quite implement his his way of football with enough precision to make it work. They were always very open, always a bit vulnerable, and not really playing to their strengths as a team. Now I think that this Leeds team is better geared towards his football. I think it's a better fit, ideologically almost, if you will, but. You still need these little bits that make the difference and these little bits that make a team really believe in you as a manager. You know, the team starts believing if you say, attack the right back on the right-hand side, that's where he's a little bit weaker, go outside him and you do it and you score a goal and you think, okay, I just better listen next time because this guy really knows what he's talking about. And I think um, a big sort of big marquee win again, a little bit like we were talking earlier, would, would help him in that journey. Yeah, he was. You're right in the sense that Leeds was quite a good team to take over, but also quite a bad team in the sense that their recruitment has been so scattergun in a sense, and their squad is kind of so thin in some areas. And you know, Patrick Bamford, we talked about overperformance on XG. He's he's had four or three point nine nine XG this season, and he hasn't scored. I mean, everyone that watches Leeds knows that when he plays, they do play better and they create better chances, but. He has to start scoring some goals, and and him scoring a couple of goals would have probably made a big difference, and the and the whole narrative around the team would be different. 
Who's who's the player with the biggest deficit on their XG so far this season? It is Bamford. Oh, is it? Is it really? Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, Colin, so. you were pointing out Leeds failing to win a game throughout the reign of the previous Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Will they do it in this one? How, how long a time frame do you think they've got for this, Colin? What would be your guess on that? Well, it's over over minus 44 days is the, the current going rate. <laughs> so let's see. Um, that was also the length of time that David Blaine um, spent in that, that box above the, the River Thames in mm. the 2003-04 season. And that also saw Leeds get relegated that year. So let's see if there's... Um, History repeats itself. Arsenal also won the league that year, so there is there, there are quite a few similarities. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Rafa said about Jesse Marsh as well. I, you know, the, the, I I always thought this season that he might be one of the first to go. And whenever you have Leeds fans chanting the name of Marcelo Bielsa, and you have quite a lot of quite a lot of outward discontent, it's very very hard for any manager, I think, to get that back without a sustained run of very good results. And that's just, it just, I just can't see it at the minute. All right. Well, a win at Anfield would certainly be a big push in the direction of winning people over and help. Leads out of the bottom three, potentially. Liverpool, who have struggled after Champions League midweeks, as we've seen against Brighton previously. Well, among the other delights awaiting us this weekend in the Premier League is the ongoing fresh start for Aston Villa and how well it survives a trip to Newcastle. That and other tales after this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Newcastle taking on Aston Villa, Saturday 3 o'clock in that Premier League. Newcastle are now in the top four, although only goal difference ahead of Chelsea who have a game in hand. Villa have leapt up to 12th place after their 4-0 win over Brentford last weekend. Villa's XG soaring after making Stevie G their X. Colin, are you excited about the arrival of Unai Emery, which won't happen this weekend? but will afterwards. I am excited to a degree. I'm really interested to see how he does get on at a team like Villa in the sense that they are a club who are, are obviously a big club um, with, with big ambitions, but have, haven't got anywhere near those ambitions in quite some time. And I would imagine he has been tasked with um, over the next maybe two seasons of attaining European football, which we all know Unai Emery excels at, possibly more than than any other coach who's outside that very elite bracket. When you when you look at the the titles he's won at Sevilla, reaching the final of Arsenal, winning winning the Europa League with Villarreal, reaching the semi finals of the Champions League last season. But obviously there is a limit to what he can do, um, and that that is sort of a it's borne out a little bit in the league finishes. Villarreal finished in the top six in that league in six of the seven seasons before Emery came in, and he didn't manage to bring them into the top six. And either of his two full campaigns at the club, he's left them in seventh place again, and that's been an ongoing issue that there has been there has been a little bit of an underachievement uh, in that sense, but. At a club like Villa, might he actually be able to bring them up into the top half to consolidate that? I think he might be, and it's a little bit—it's a little bit of a disappointment in a way that he's not going to be in the dugout to face Newcastle because they were, of course, the club whom he had agreed to join a year ago in a move that had been agreed between Emery and Newcastle, but Villarreal essentially, essentially blocked the move without without a heavy payout to Emery sort of back down from at the end. He, he stayed with the club and obviously went on to reach the, the last four of the Champions League. So 
that was almost like a turning point um, for him, for Newcastle as well, who went on to, went on to appoint Eddie Howe. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I, I just want I, I just want to know how how he get on, how Villa fans will react to his football because we all know that he's an excellent coach in terms of implementing structure, in terms of getting a, a team dynamic whereby players are very well coached and they know they know the rules, they they improve individually, but most importantly as a team. But there is a limit to it. I think he is inherently a quite a conservative coach. I think that quite often his teams will play very very well in a match. And maybe when they take the lead, they tend to become a lot more passive. They tend to to stand off and not give the initiative to the other team. So with Emery, it's a bit of a you you know what you're going to get. But I I just would would love to see how he how he consolidates a team who who have looked very shaky quite a bit under the last two managers. And I've said it before about Aston Villa, but what constitutes success for their fans. It's very difficult to attain European football, which I think would be undeniably successful. And that that's 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 the task Emery has. And if he can if he can if he can pull that off then it'll then it'll probably go down as, as another another very fine achievement for him. It didn't look shaky under interim boss Aaron Danks last weekend with that four 0 win over the Bees. Villa though haven't won at St James's Park, where they'll be for this game, since April 2005, a, a match which lives on in infamy. Does anybody remember this game? It was the Lee Boyer-Kieran Dyer punch-up match. Mm. Rafa? No? Duncan, tell him. They just had a, an on-field disagreement and, uh, and yeah, Boyer lamped Dyer, so to speak. Um, it remains the last time a team uh, had three players sent off in a Premier League game. It's only happened three times. Um, Barnsley did it then West Ham against Leeds, and then this Newcastle-Villa game. This fixture in particular, actually, th- there's quite a lot of um, quite a lot of beef around it. Villa and Newcastle fans really don't like each other. They were in a relegation battle, and then obviously together in the Championship. So given given how well Newcastle are are doing, and and Villa now under you know soon new, a new manager, I think this has got potential to be a really kind of hotly contested match and, and definitely I'm not saying anyone's going to get three red cards this weekend but there might be there might be some feisty uh, some feisty challenges good lord that's three o'clock Saturday so you can't watch it but you can stick around and at 5.30 have some Fulham Everton Marco Silva up against the club that sacked him just over three years ago Mitrovic in action only Harlan and Kane have scored more Premier League goals than him so far this season any other stats about that game we should know Duncan it's the home game, Classico, home win Classico rather. So uh, Everton have got 14 home wins against Fulham. Fulham have got a record nine against Everton. So it nearly always goes with the home team. So, uh, yeah, back Fulham. Fulham at home this time. Mm. Mm. Man United up against West Ham. That usually goes a certain way. Has David Moyes ever won a league game at Old Trafford as a visiting manager? What no. do the machines say, Duncan? They say no. He's, obviously, we know he's never won there as a visiting manager, or Anfield, or Stamford Bridge, or away mm. Arsenal. It's got to happen sometime. I mean, to be fair, he barely won a game at Old Trafford as Manchester United manager. So, uh, you know, but it, it will happen someday. And do you know what? I think it might happen this weekend. He's only won seven fewer matches away at Old Trafford as a visiting manager than he did as home manager. It's a nicer way of putting it, I think. The that Hammers, Promoise, yeah. The Hammers, for their part, haven't won there in the Premier League in over 15 years. Good Lord. Carlos Tevez, back in uh, the days mm. of Carlos Tevez. That's 15 years ago now. Remarkable. Rafa. Carlos Tevez playing for West Ham, you mean? Yes, sorry. Back in the times when he and Mascherano, although he didn't get to see so much of Hayden the, Mullins. Also, tell kids that these days, I think you're talking... The stuff of madman's dreams. Anyway, did anyone have any strong thoughts about West Ham's visit to Man United this time? Well, I, I just want to say a quick, a quick word on on United. I think if you look at the the team spirit that that, that is quite overtly in in place is is night and day um, compared to what it has been in previous seasons. And I think that that sort of culture change at the club, which was obviously required and was such a difficult 
job that was handed um, the Ralph Ranick on, on an interim basis last year, whereby it was very difficult to to really assert authority over a group of players, many of whom were quite openly wanting to leave the club. But you look at the celebrations and, and the victory over Spurs, the, the last minute equaliser against Chelsea, and I think a lot of that comes down to the player recruitment that that, that happened over the summer with Casemiro. Lissandro Martinez, Anthony, these are all players who seem to be totally and utterly bought in to what Eric Ten Hag is doing, to what the club are doing. And they look like they're leaders in that team. They're team players. They're not They're not players that if you're an opposition team, you, you want to face. And I think that they almost have the, the personality which a lot of Man United teams have lacked in recent years. And that goes along with the, 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 the obvious coaching improvements that, that Ten Hag has brought in in terms of the, the style of play, playing much more proactively. For large, for large parts of that game at Chelsea, I, I thought they looked like the home team. It's about the players, the people coming in, but it's also about removing some of the negative influences from the operation. And Raphael Honigstein, I think you know what I mean. <laughs> one of the one of the, the many, many people involved in that total collapse last last season. Yeah. Because you you know firsthand how difficult it is to engender positivity, and and as such, are you stunned by how well, how quickly Ten Hag has been able to wreak those changes? No, I wouldn't say I'm stunned, but I think he's he's done some really good work, and he's he's obviously a great manager, and he's I think crucially he's got the backing of of the whole club because some of the more difficult decisions he has to make especially in relation to Cristiano Ronaldo, you can only make if you know that the club are backing you up and not secretly sort of saying, what is he doing? Our most important asset is not on the bench. That's terrible, etc. I wanted to make a point about, just to go on from what Colin said, I think Jurgen Klopp once said, uh, it's better to have a bad plan than no plan at all. And uh, I think that is probably uh, a decent way to sum up their transfer policy this this year. I, I still have some doubts whether the natural ceiling of players like Anthony and, and Christian Eriksen and Malasia is maybe too low to take United all the way back to where they want to be or should be relative to their resources. But simply having an idea of what this team is supposed to be and a manager who's now in charge, at least for the time being, in the transfer policy is such an improvement of what we've seen over the last nine years that I think it's already been beneficial. So even if Ten Hag is not able to implement his vision in a way that they will get close immediately to to the likes of Man City, I think you can see what happens if there is a bit of a unified vision between what you're trying to do and the kind of players you bring in. Is it better to have a bad plan than no plan at all? I think so. Famously, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. My, that's my other favourite maxim about plans. No deal is better than a bad deal, which is not what Barry Fry <laughs> used to say. Um, I mean, to that point, hmm. it's a very minor thing, but the the kind of bond between the roaring Casemiro and the United away support last weekend, what well, those sort of moments can can build a, a season. Now we're in a we're in a Ronaldo apology week this week. We can't hmm. tell what it will be next week, but. And we're recording this before the Europa League game, so it, it could, you know, who knows? But it, the the vibe, as the as the other guys have said, is is definitely good. And I think that really ha- it's been a so long coming for Man United, so long. Um, you know, you think back, obviously, with Moyes coming there this weekend, that first that season he had, it it just didn't feel right, and Van Persie didn't feel like he, you know, was happy there and. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So it, it does take a long time to turn that around, and it does finally feel like that has has changed. Better days then for Man United. Meantime, one manager from that part of Europe called Ralph, who has had the chance to turn things around, is Ralph Hasenhüttl. Nice segue. His Saints will be at Crystal Palace Saturday at three o'clock. Duncan, I, need, I know you want to finish the show with this one. Take it away. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought that result for Palace last weekend at Everton was was really disappointing because they they have been playing well. Eze's been great, you know. Zaha's been a bit grumpy but playing really well. And okay, they're better at home. They're going for three wins in a row at home. And 
you know, Palace could be this season's. They could be where Fulham are, I think, um, but they're not quite yet. So they'll be looking to uh, to win this game and, and sort of get back into into mid table. Very nice, Duncan. You got to head off now, listener. You're a busy person as well. So thanks for your time. Thanks as well to Raphael Honigstein. You can always read his wise words on theAthletic.com, including this week. Topically enough, an interview with Callum Hudson-Odoi about how happy he is, free at last from his Chelsea wing-back days, and Rafa scoring, part of that Atletico Madrid disaster midweek. Yeah, yeah, really happy for him, because usually I write nice stuff about people and then they get sacked or <laughs> don't ever play again. So uh, for once, uh, the opposite effect. Nice. Hurrah. Excellent. Colin, many thanks as well to you and producer Charlie and listener. We hopefully will be seeing you on Monday when we'll be back to review all of that and throw a few thoughts ahead to the final midweek of Champions League action. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.